0: Thomas and Aaron, springtime is about as good a time as any to start addressing the magnificent rivalry between New York and Boston. And no matter what side of that rivalry you're on, and you have to pick a side, you'd be hard-pressed to find another one quite as great within these United States of America, not just for its passion, but for the historical significance and longevity that this particular rivalry has encompassed. And while the Sox or the Sox may have us on their two most recent World Series titles, as far as my math works, 27 World Championships beats nine. But (laughs) and if you go back a little further than that, like I do, we can simply mention two names, Bill Buckner and Mookie Wilson. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Anyway, while you may savor this great rivalry along with me, How far back does the spirit of that rivalry actually go? As far back as, say, the creation of Major League Baseball? Or maybe even further? Maybe that rivalry goes back as far as, say, the Stamp Act of 1765 and the competition that existed between these two developing cities and the events involving loyalists and patriots that would eventually lead to the American Revolution. Well, let me say that it actually goes back even more than 150 years before that. Yes, it does. And so I was just talking to someone the other day about how our American history is not only not very well known, but it's not very well represented either. And while there were pilgrims whom we all learn about somewhat, what we learn about them generally is that they gleefully sailed across the Atlantic Landed at Plymouth Rock, sat down with the Native Americans for a great Thanksgiving feast, and lived happily ever after, <laughs> which is not true at all. And why are these clarifications important? Because they not only define why these people, of whom some of us are direct descendants, came here in the first place, but they also clarify why we're here at all. And if we listen to these lessons, They can remind us of who we are and who we may want to try to become. Well, folks, if I could pick one person to share the story of this long, long, long standing rivalry between New York and Boston, I could do no better than the gentleman whom we are honored to host today, a man who will himself articulate along with me, The finer points of, for instance, a letter scripted in Dutch and French in 1627 by the man who had just recently purchased the island of Manhattan from the native Algonquins and wrote it in effort to reach out to the next closest colony, the Plymouth Colony, up near Cape Cod. And to what end? Well, to try to expand the profit centers of the Dutch West India Company, of course. His book is They Knew They Were Pilgrims, and few titles can help us tell this remarkable epic story better than it. So, damas and Aaron, mesdames and messieurs, damas y caballeros, ladies and gentlemen, it is with great reverence and esteem that I introduce Professor John G. Turner of George Mason University. Welcome, in here
1: Thanks. I'm pleased to be with you, but I have to sort of disappoint you and tell you that my wife's from Boston. I'm from Western New York, so... I'm kind of straddling both, both sides of this rivalry.
0: I kind of knew you weren't from Boston, or I was assuming you weren't from Boston, but I'm glad your wife is from Boston. And by the way, it's all good fun. I have lots of friends and family in Boston. But um, t- a lot of people, I would venture to say most people, are just not that well-versed on the, the, re- the specific religious distinction of, these, of this sect of people that came over here on the Mayflower in 1620. We all know, as I said, we all know this story of the pilgrims to some extent, but even I started digging into the history. I, I, it took me a while to really wrap my hands around what made them distinct to, to themselves in this overall scope of Protestantism. Can, can you, as a, as a professor... And as a cradle to halfway to the grave Presbyterian straddling mainline and evangelical Protestantism, can you delineate that for us a little bit?
1: I can take a crack at it. And you're right. I think a lot of these finer distinctions, they seem really foreign to Americans in the 21st century. I mean, even even all the sort of denominational divisions among Protestants that used to be important to american christians they aren't really all that important today so if you go back to the early 1600s and you you sort of have all of these subspecies of protestant reformers it can get really confusing and then i also think in you know in grade school or even you know middle or high school you know, americans will learn these distinctions between pilgrims and puritans and they probably get some sense that Puritans are bad and pilgrims are better. And, you know, I think it's all it's all confusing. And, and, you know, we need to get a little bit, a little bit more into, you know, what motivated these individuals. So, um, you know, I think essentially the best starting point is to recognize that a lot of English Protestants were unhappy with their national church. They didn't think it had under um, Henry VIII and then Queen Elizabeth I, they didn't think it was sufficiently reformed. They thought it was still too Catholic. Um, some of them didn't like the fact that it was a church controlled by the state. You know, that was also a point of complaint. But mainly they wanted to further purify it from things that seemed too Catholic, whether that was priestly garments making the sign of the cross at baptism, um, sort of all the pageantry and kneeling in the Lord's Supper. Uh, They had a whole host of complaints. And so those people became known as Puritans for their desire to further purify the church. They wanted to get rid of anything that didn't seem biblical to them. Now, they couldn't necessarily agree on all of the finer points, all of the details, what was okay, what wasn't. And sort of the most extreme Puritans or one group of extreme Puritans became known as separatists. They totally rejected the Church of England. They thought it was a false church. They didn't want to reform it. They wanted to get rid of it and start over with their own small... Uh, congregations formed by covenants among true Christians. And so that is the impulse um, that eventually gets us to the Mayflower.
0: Essentially, the the separatists, the people who came over, the main religious group that came over on the Mayflower, because they weren't all separatists but there were a few stragglers here and there mm-hmm. there were some soldiers and some some crew but for the most part this was william brewster um uh william bradford and that flock who were mm-hmm. who were worshiping under john robinson in leiden but robinson never came over correct he was their minister
1: yeah, they were, you know, once they got here, by the way, that's a really important point. They were sort of sheep without a shepherd. You know, they had a really hard time getting a uh, full-time minister that they liked for a couple of decades. It was a huge problem for the colony. But yeah, just to, that's that's absolutely right. And the thing to that might be useful to know about these separatists is they were a really hated and loathed. Religious group in England in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Pretty much nobody liked them. So obviously, the state church and its bishops and officials, crown officials, didn't like them because they they understood them as seditious because they didn't accept uh, the queen or king as the head of the church. And you know, they they executed a number of them in the late 1500s. Other Puritans also disliked them because they thought they were too extreme, and they gave somewhat more respectable Puritans a bad name. So Shakespeare, in one of his plays, he has this line that basically, it's just about as bad to be a Brownist as a politician. Separatists were known as Brownists uh, from uh, this one reformer named Thomas Brown. Um, So, you know, if you're as bad as a politician, you're pretty bad.
0: And you had another quote in there about um, the Puritans. What was the quote? It was
1: great. Yeah, it's basically a stereotype of the Puritans as <laughs> people who love the Lord with all their heart and hate their neighbor just as much. Yeah, something um, like that. they were
0: really insular people. They were really about getting over here and just insulating themselves, transporting this congregation to this new world.
1: Well, it's, it, you know, I wouldn't say they're totally insular, though, because one of their hopes was that, you know, they're, they're in Leiden for a while. And, you know, it's somewhat difficult living. You know, not all of them are at the top of the economic ladder. And, you know, they've been persecuted in England. And because of that, they don't have a lot of broad appeal. And they think that if they, plant a colony that prospers then that means also prospers economically more of those puritans who might have kept them at arm's le- length in england might give them sort of a second look or decide to join them they don't want to be just this absolutely tiny church with no influence on the world they actually want to become you know they, they sort of want to plant a seed that grows into something much bigger and greater.
0: Yeah, I I guess and I don't mean to criticize or denigrate what they were trying to do. I th- I think these all these reformed protestants, all these calvinists were doing what they thought was right. You know, and what they saw as the 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 main malfunction with the with the Church of England and prior to that with the greater Holy Roman Empire, which, which is all the Church of England was, was the offshoot of that when Henry VIII wanted to get a, a legal divorce. So he split from the Church of England. I mean, he split Roman Catholicism, but it was essentially Henry VIII's version of Roman Catholicism. And that's, right. I think, why they had the major issues with it, because it was essentially church and state was the same and there was no questioning it in any way
1: right and you know under elizabeth and even under james you know this sort of ebbs and flows but there's sometimes there's an a tolerance or like grudging acceptance of a limited amount of dissent but that all rests on the pleasure of the crown and You know, the Puritans and the Pilgrims, if you take a closer look at them, you know, these are not a tolerant bunch in a modern sense, but they're also up against a really intolerant state-controlled religious system. And hardly anybody wants to have a free marketplace of uh, religion in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Usually, most people have some sense of what a true church looks like and they don't really want other options out there unless they think they just have to live with it which is sort of the situation in the dutch republic
0: you say um when these pilgrims these separatists came across settled here in plymouth mass when they formed a government and made laws pilgrim leaders could not envision and would not have favored democracy as later Americans would understand it. That's very interesting. Can mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So democracy sort of was a dirty word in the 17th century. It was still a dirty word at the time of the American Revolution. you know, a lot of the founding fathers, you know, they want to distance themselves from that concept. Um, the and you know the Pilgrims they get accused sometimes of being democratic Um, and John Robinson, their pastor back in Leiden, he, he, in one of his writings, he sort of conceded the point that the government of their church was somewhat democratic. So this was sort of a, sort of a dirty word. Um, You know, despite that, you know, there, there is sort of a democratic germ, if you will, Um, in the Mayflower Compact, Um, you know, partly just because of the particular circumstances, pretty much all of the men among the Mayflower passengers become a member of what they call the body politic, you know, the group of people who can elect um, officers and approve laws in Plymouth. And I do actually think that is sort of democratic and radical for the time, and they have an annual election for a governor, which is also kind of a radical idea at the time. You know, as the colony progresses and gets a little bit bigger, it becomes less and less democratic as the years pass. Uh, Not a very high percentage of men um, have the right to vote, and it's usually sort of a small cadre of leaders who Um, are sort of calling the shots most of the time.
0: You mentioned, Leiden, that the the pilgrims, these people, these separatists who started in London, left London in, I think, 1609 or thereabouts, John Robinson and his flock, and they first went to Scrooby, correct?
1: Well, so they come from a number of places in England. Scrooby and Gainsborough are the most famous, and there's... One or two covenanted congregations of these separatists there, but they're you know they're they're scattered here and there elsewhere. So you know there's there's a town on the coast in the south of England called Sandwich. A number of them come from from there, um, and the, it's sort of a time of renewed persecution of separatists around 1606, 1607 and they sort of they sort of in groups or sometimes as individuals they make their way first to amsterdam and then leiden and so a lot of them are there for about a dozen years and by around 1617 they they're starting to think seriously about leaving you know i think there's there's a few reasons for that you know they Nothing, you know. I don't know what they had against Dutch, but they didn't want to all become Dutch. Um, they wanted to stay English. They wanted their children to grow up both English and within their church. There was a lot of political tumult um, in the Dutch Republic at the time. I think that also contributed. And at the same time, it's actually interesting. I think most people don't know this. Most of them were very hesitant to leave. About a third of the congregation um ultimately um, crosses the Atlantic. Some of them don't have the money to do that, but I think most of them they know starting a colony, it's kind of a foolish thing to do, really difficult, high likelihood of death. so a lot of them stay behind and do eventually sort of blend into um you know Dutch reformed uh society
0: and that actually. Plays into your title for the book. They knew they were pilgrims. It's from the Bible, and they it it had to do with you know um, allaying the fear that they had, and 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 disregarding the 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 concerns they had for their welfare. I mean, they were essentially going. It was almost like going to the moon today to form a colony based yeah. on you know technology and the abilities of of these humans to go off into the wilderness. And they did it because they knew they were pilgrims.
1: Yeah, so it's a uh, it's a phrase from the New Testament, and th- these people didn't think of themselves as the pilgrims. Um, you know that they didn't start getting called that really until the early eighteen hundreds, but they were essentially having this tearful parting with the people in their congregation who weren't joining them on the venture, and William Bradford reflects you know, we really don't know what's going to happen to us on earth. You know, we might get killed. We don't know exactly where um, our ships are going to land. We don't know what's going to happen. But we know we're pilgrims in the sense of Christians on a pilgrimage that ultimately leads to heaven. So we don't know what's going to happen to us on earth, but we can essentially deal with it because we have confidence in our eternal destination So it's sort of an idea just that faith is going to sustain them no matter what the earthly travails are. And you're totally right. I mean, these people knew the first group of colonists going everywhere. It's almost certainly going to be a disaster. They knew what had happened in Jamestown. Um, There are other disasters they're aware of. And so it's a really high likelihood that the first group is going to have a rough time.
0: Yeah. And again, they had to keep their goals And their objectives fairly focused and it's it's no knock on their pursuit that they they had to survive and they had to do what they initially set out to do and you you say in the book the leiden pilgrims came to the new world to establish a haven for separatism not a bastion of religious toleration and freedom their goal was to transplant a congregation found a prosperous colony, and attract Puritans wavering on the threshold of separatism to join them. Then, a little bit later on, you say, the Pilgrims were determined to keep New Plymouth's church and government in their own hands. They preserve their own liberty by denying it to others.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of the grade school idea. The Pilgrims came to Plymouth for religious liberty, which is true. But as, you know, those quotes point to, they came for their understanding of Christian liberty, which was really specific and narrow. It was the liberty to have church in the way they understood it according to the Bible, not to have some free-for-all, free marketplace of religion. And so that, you know, that's, that's what they came for. They wanted their own liberty of conscience and they didn't now in keeping with their vision of the church they weren't going to make anybody else join their church they wouldn't even have accepted most people they weren't going to make other people get their children baptized most of the time they didn't even make other people attend church but they didn't want multiple religious options in their colony and you know there's a few flashpoints as the colony develops where they really try to stamp out uh, dissent and you know those are some of the fault lines that i think make sort of the history of these colonies in the 17th century really really fascinating
0: i agree with you history in general to to i would say to most people is is initially has a stereotype of being boring dusty you know uh nebulous it's it's you got to read kids don't read today but i've always looked at it through through the the lens of of characters through the eyes of characters and i think it's really critical that in your book does it very well where you really get into the characters of bradford and and brewster and and the the the, the family the offspring of the of these people and you know, people like Isaac Allerton, who was one of my favorites. The characters really start to make the story interesting, I think. I think the characters define the history very much for me. And, like, for, for instance, in, in the Dutch story, you know, one of the first permanent settlers in, in New Netherland was a, 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 a walloon by the name of Joris Rapalia. And he came over at 19 years old with his Parisian wife, who was 18, I, I mean, I have kids who are 23. I can't imagine them going across the ocean to found a colony. But Bradford himself wasn't much older than that when he came over, was he?
1: Now, you know, you can find people like John Alden, who's another one of the famous Mayflower pilgrims. He's he's super young. I You know, he's still in his teens on the Mayflower. And he dies at the age of 88. He almost makes it. He almost lives the colony's whole 70 years of existence. He doesn't quite make it. I think he dies in 1686 or something like that. But not only, you know, in the Pilgrim case, not only do a lot of these people come over very young, a lot of them live a long time. So Bradford is on the scene and more or less in charge of the colony through the 1650s. So, you know, these people, they show up and they're pretty sturdy. I mean, even someone like uh, William Brewster, who's the elder in the congregation and um, really their foremost preacher for the first 25 years of the colony, that's a long time to be on the scene. John Winthrop's another good example of that in Massachusetts Bay. I mean, he's he's sort of more or less in charge for about twenty years, but that's a long time too. Um, you know, if you look at the history of a lot of somewhere like Jamestown, you know, you got, you got leaders coming and going all the time. Um, Plymouth had a lot of stability.
0: Yeah, whatever, whatever the Plymouth Pilgrims missed in terms of uh, transporting the English monarchy to the States, uh, Winthrop and his son did their best to follow it up, but they're very pivotal to this overall epic story. Um, let's go back to Isaac Allerton a little bit. He's, he's interesting to me because he's one of the first cast-offs that lands by default uh, by, by attrition in Manhattan. Yeah. What happened? What was the major malfunction with Allerton as far as the Puritans were concerned?
1: So yeah, Allerton, he's a, he is a fascinating character. So I think he's, he's grows up. He's a tailor in England. Then he ends up a member of John Robinson's congregation in Leiden. He, um, when he gets to Plymouth, his, his first wife dies almost immediately. Right. Almost half of the Mayflower passengers die the first uh, winter. He then marries William Brewster's daughter. Yeah. So, you know, he's very much at the center of the colony's leadership. He's elected as an assistant magistrate to uh, William Bradford. Um, and then he starts going back and forth to London and forms a connection with some of the colony's financial backers. Basically, they, they need to find a way to make New Plymouth work uh, financially, and they have a number of arrangements that ultimately hinge on their ability to control the New England fur trade. Allerton though he doesn't just devote him to the colony's cause he starts pursuing his own trading opportunities alongside those of his pilgrim partners and bradford i mean he is unstinting in his criticism of allerton in his history of the colony you know he says basically allerton's playing his own game he makes it very clear he regards this as sinful and selfish. And I think it's shortly after Allerton's second wife dies, if I'm not mistaken. He really detaches himself from New Plymouth. He goes to Massachusetts Bay. Then he sort of goes back and forth between New Haven and New Amsterdam. I'm, you know, I don't know that much about his later activities but he does pretty well i think he's still successful as a merchant and trader and can sort of remake remake his life out of the colony so i think he just he found sort of the colony's financial arrangements too restrictive and you know his partners they want to make the colony thrive and attract other people to their religious vision I don't know how Allerton ends up really thinking about that, but he clearly wants to chart his own course.
0: I I love the way he he sort of signs on to this voyage, comes across and they sort of notice, hey, this guy, this guy's kind of a wheeler dealer type. Let's send him back. They elect they nominate him to go back and renegotiate with the Virginia company to find a way for them to wrest control of the ownership of the colony after seven years, I believe. Mm -hmm. He goes back and does what, you know, as I see it, he does what he has to do and he gets it done. Then they start criticizing him up and down about how he did it. Yet they're, they're the Puritans who won't leave Plymouth and they send him to go do their bidding and then they argue about it when he comes back and has succeeded in doing it. Ultimately, he was. He was a wheeler dealer. He was a businessman. And they cast him out because he was not pure and Puritan enough. It's almost as if he always belonged on Manhattan Island because while they were pilgrims, in my own view, they had more than just one god. (laughs) (laughs) They had at least two gods, and one of them was the Dutch West India Company Board of Directors
1: yeah so I mean the you know the there's it's interesting there's another Mayflower passenger named Edward Winslow, and he's you know in some in, in a similar way he's at least as cosmopolitan as Allerton. he's also a pretty shrewd um businessman um very successful in terms of he he has a little bit more wealth, I think, when he first joins this venture, and he does rather well for himself in New Plymouth. He also spends a lot of time uh, back in London. You know, I think both he and Allerton, I mean, Allerton was a member of the congregation in Leiden, so he had been a separatist. But I think, you know, they, they're not all a bunch of rubes, right? These... You know, they they have some really talented men, and I think some of them, you know, they feel a tug between this little colony that Bradford really wants them to focus on this tightly knit colony in Plymouth. Bradford doesn't even like it when people disperse to form other towns in the colony. But, you know, and then you have these men that like Winslow and Allerton, they have this broader view of the world. They're comfortable, you know, crossing the Atlantic, going to different colonies. Winslow, nevertheless, remains a little bit more rooted and attached to the colony. Allerton, I think he just realizes, look, I, I'm not going to be able to pursue my own opportunities. The, these people are going to hold me back. And once, once he doesn't have the family connection tying him to the colony, I think he's just out of there. The other thing Allerton does... Um, is he does he does something that just seems inexplicable in 1629 so there was this um sort of roguish scoundrel named Thomas Morton who his is another really long story you could mm-hmm. definitely fill multiple podcast <laughs> episodes just on him but essentially he had founded his own trading outpost on the rim of Massachusetts bay And the um, Pilgrims understood that as a serious threat to their own prosperity because uh, Morden was sort of jousting with them for access to the best sources of uh, furs. And so they basically ransack his outpost and they send him back to England. Allerton brings Thomas Morden... Back across the Atlantic is in his employ as a scribe in 1629 And I am sure from the moment he did that, Bradford, you know sized this guy up as okay, he's he's sort of gone over to the dark side. and you know, if you're willing to associate with this person that we really regard as immoral and as an economic threat to us. You know, you're, you're not really on the Lord's side anymore.
0: Yeah. Once you start down that path of the dark, evil throes of capitalism, sometimes they never come back, John, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, great. Uh, listen, tell us what else is going on. Any other titles you're working on? Any other events that you, you want to let us know about?
1: Well, I'm not working on anything pertaining to early um, New England, but- it's. I'm working on a biography of another son of New England, uh, Joseph Smith, the Mormon Latter Day oh, Saint yeah. prophet.
0: Oh, very. So
1: hopefully that book will be out next year.
0: Fabulous. Good luck with that. And tell tell us your. You have a website that all, all this information is on. All your titles and everything that you do is is there. Can you let everybody know your website?
1: Yeah, it's pretty simple. JohnGTurner.com.
0: JohnGTurner.com. Well, Professor John G. Turner, your remarkable detail and perspective in telling this fascinating story is clearly driven by a passion that I share and that I so greatly admire. There's something sacred about not just imparting this remarkable story onto others, but in doing it in a way that is untarnished by any bias and in telling it in a way that makes people want to listen, especially people today, because this story in so many ways is who we are and if we listen very closely to it it can help to guide us because in in the immortal words of the great thomas Paine, the cause of america is in a great measure the cause of all mankind and i really believe that you and i are officially co-conspirators in a holy pursuit of making history cool your book is timeless and momentous and i commend you on it and i thank you tremendously for taking the time to share your priceless time spirit and insight with us and we look forward to following your career as it moves forward thank you so much
1: pleasure to be with you
0: okay sir thank you for coming on we'll talk to you soon the book is they knew they were pilgrims by author john g turner available at all major booksellers and on his website at john g if you're enjoying us on youtube please be sure to hit the subscribe button to get every episode And don't forget to tune in to our companion podcast, Island, the incredible history of the island of Manhattan from 1609 to 1909. History is cool. Island Voices is a production of Chance Kelly, Inc. and may not be reproduced or re-exhibited in any manner in whole or in part without authorization. Thank you.